There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. And this is our short summer season about the great essays and the great essayists of the 20th century. Last week was George Orwell. This week is a contemporary of his, someone who had, as we'll see, quite a lot in common with George Orwell and was also not like anyone else. Not like anyone else. It's Simone Weil, and I'm talking about her 1943 essay, Human Personality. I can't say what it's about, as you'll hear, but it's kind of about everything. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you've been enjoying the subjects we cover on PPF, we really think you will enjoy the LRB. And listeners can subscribe for just £1 an issue for the first three months at lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Henry Thoreau, the essayist I talked about a few weeks ago, the author of Civil Disobedience, died relatively young. He was just 44. And he died of tuberculosis, which was one of the great killers of the 19th century, the scourge of all sorts of people, of the poor, of the young. And for some reason, it was thought to be the disease of writers and artists. The view arose that getting consumption was somehow an appropriate way for a, for an artist to die. Byron said that he would like to die of tuberculosis because he was a poet. Somehow it was thought to be a romantic disease. I'm not sure I understand why, because it doesn't sound at all romantic to die of tuberculosis. By the middle of the 20th century, it was nowhere near as prevalent, TB, but it was still a scourge and it still killed many people. Someone else who died relatively young was the essayist and writer I talked about last week, George Orwell. He was just 46 when he died, and he also died of tuberculosis. And so did the writer that I'm talking about today, Simone Weil. And she was far younger than either of them. She was just 34 when she died of TB in the summer of 1943. She had other things in common with George Orwell too, not just the way in which she died. Like Orwell, she was an intellectual. She was ferociously intellectual. But like Orwell, she had contempt for intellectuals, for almost all of them, for the breed, particularly the ones who professed to share some of her political views but didn't act on them. Like Orwell, Simone Weil was born into relative prosperity she was born in Paris to a reasonably well-off family. But in her 20s, she decided that she had to experience poverty and deprivation for herself. And that didn't just mean going to witness it, to write about it, to study it. It meant trying to live it. So like Orwell, who in his 20s 
tried to live as a tramp, as a down and out in Paris and London, and then did write about it. Vial, in her 20s, went to work in a factory. She gave up her philosophical studies, her academic career for a year. She worked in two factories, including a Renault factory, despite the fact that she really wasn't cut out for it. Like a lot of intellectuals, she wasn't really suited to the life of hard manual labour, and it was utterly miserable for her. It was grim on every level, physical, emotional, but she did it. And like Orwell, a few years later, she also decided that she had to volunteer for the Spanish Civil War. And like Orwell, she went to fight. And like Orwell, she wasn't really cut out to be a soldier either. The story that's told about George Orwell is that he got shot in the Spanish Civil War simply for being too tall. He stood up and put his head above the parapet, despite having been told countless times not to do that. And he got shot through the throat. The story that's told about Simone Weil is that she was invalided out of the war because she spilled a pot of cooking oil, of hot cooking oil, over her feet. It's also said that her fellow soldiers never wanted to put a gun in her hands because she was so short-sighted they didn't know who she would shoot. And with Viol, you never did really know who she would shoot. She also had quite a lot in common with Thoreau. Like Thoreau, she was deeply suspicious of majority opinion, of democratic public opinion. She thought that there was nothing remotely sacrosanct about a point of view just because in a democracy the majority had endorsed it. She thought the majority were often wrong. And treating majority opinion as though it were in some way sacred was a fatal mistake. It was the job of individuals with their consciences to stand up to democratic opinion. Like Thoreau, she was drawn to various kinds of mysticism, including Hindu philosophy and mysticism. She read and reread the Bhagavad Gita. Like Thoreau, she was also accused of being a fraud, that all of this mysticism and all of this celebration of conscience and all of this going against the grain was a kind of act. And there's a story that clings to Vile that's a bit like the story that clings to Thoreau. Thoreau has never, was never able to escape the accusation levelled against him that when he went to Walden to live on his own in nature, he still got his mother to do his washing for him every week. The story about Simone Weil is when she went away to the Spanish Civil War, her devoted parents followed her and they took her out on weekends to check that she was all right. And indeed, when she was invalided out of the war, it was her parents who came and scooped her up and looked after her and made sure she was safe. It was like a glorified gap year with her parents in tow, checking she wasn't going to do anything too crazy, too dangerous. But really, despite all of this, Simone Weil isn't anything like George Orwell. She isn't really even anything like her fellow mystic. Thoreau, or insofar as she does resemble them, she is more of the thing that they have in common than they are. She's more of it. She was more of everything. She was more uncompromising. She was more extreme. She was a kind of extremist. She was much, much less accommodating even than the notoriously unaccommodating George Orwell. And the other difference is that her outlook, her vision, unlike Orwell, is deeply religious. And unlike Thoreau, it's a Catholic vision. She was born Jewish, 
to a secular agnostic Jewish family in Paris. Throughout her life, she rejected her Jewish inheritance. She tried to escape from it. One of the, and there are quite a few of these, one of the unattractive features of Weil's life and thought is that she came to embrace the vulgar anti-Semitism of her age, despite the fact that she had been born Jewish. She was, though it's a cliche, it's still true, she was a self-hating Jew. She thought that the Jews were a rootless, cosmopolitan people. The mysticism that she embraced, and ultimately the mysticism that took her over in the 1930s, and culminating in a set of religious experiences in 1938, was Catholic. It was Christian and it was Catholic. In her words, she she had an experience that brought Christ into her life. But what's so distinctive about Vile is that though she became a Catholic, she couldn't bring herself to become a Catholic. That is, she couldn't bring herself to join the Catholic Church because she believed in her uncompromising way that any version of the truth, of the true faith, of the capital T truth, of the capital F faith, was compromised and corrupted whenever it assumed an institutional form. Any institution couldn't be the vehicle for the truth. And that included the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, for vile, with its wealth, and its history, and its hierarchy, and its status, and its doctrines, and its willingness to excommunicate and to insist on certain things as a price for entry, meant that she, as an individual with an individual conscience, couldn't enter the church, despite the fact that she had converted in her own mind to its faith. So she was a Catholic who refused to be baptised into the Catholic Church which is quintessentially Simone Weil. And it extends to her attitude to a whole range of institutions across not just religious life, but political life. She was a woman of strong beliefs, of passionate political convictions, which included socialist, indeed Marxist convictions. But she couldn't bring herself to join or belong to an institution, any institution, which tried to channel those convictions in an institutional form. All institutions for Vile ultimately corrupted the truths that they claimed to espouse. So one example of that, one set of institutions that she rejected, were political parties. At the end of her life in 1943, she wrote an essay calling for, I quote, the abolition of all political parties. And in that essay, it's not the one I'm going to focus on here, but it's quintessentially vile. In that essay, she says that modern political parties are an extension of another institution that she ultimately cannot abide, the Catholic Church, with their doctrines and their intolerances and their persecution of heretics and their treating education as itself a form of indoctrination. And in that essay, she says all political parties tend towards totalitarianism. Ultimately, that's their goal, that's their mission, to subsume the individual in their desire for growth and power and prestige. So that in the end, if you belong to a political party, you will be swallowed by it. The only alternative is to be crushed by it. Now, she wrote this in 1943, and you might think, in 1943, she had a point. 
Some political parties were quite clearly totalitarian. The Nazi party was absolutely as she described it. It made the Catholic Church look like a teddy bear's picnic in its intolerance and its willingness to torture and persecute and kill those who didn't belong and in the way in which it treated education as a kind of brainwashing. And it's also true of the Communist Party, that is, the Communist Party of the 1940s, which in many places had become an extension of Stalinism. Stalinism is also a form of totalitarianism. And Stalinist parties were equally intolerant and unable to accommodate even mild dissent. But Weil isn't just talking about the Nazi Party or Communist Parties. She's talking about liberal parties too. She includes liberal democratic parties, social democratic parties, Christian democratic parties. The British Labour Party would fall under this description. The American Republican Party. All of the many, many parties that she saw at work in France across the full spectrum of democratic life. Not just the extremes, not just the totalitarian extremes, but the people in the middle too, she thought, aspired towards forms of totalitarian control. Being a liberal, in her mind, was absolutely no excuse for thinking you could get away with creating a political party. All parties corrupt. And her solution was typically blunt. All parties, therefore, should be abolished. There should be an edict that outlawed them. If you're going to have a democracy... It has to be without political parties. And in response to the obvious rejoinder, which is, you can't really do that. And if it were true that democracy needs to be without political parties, why have all modern democracies, without exception, required political parties in order to function? She says that's the typical mistake that people make. It's a classic fallacy. They say, if it were possible to do this, we would have done it long ago. The fact that we haven't done it means that it's impossible. And Vile's response to that is, the fact that we haven't done it is simply evidence that we've never tried to do this seriously. She doesn't completely reject democracy. In that essay, calling for the abolition of political parties, she does try to defend an idea of democracy. It's a very pure version. And it's one she associates with Rousseau and Rousseau's social contract. The French Revolution, which more or less invented the modern political party, is also for Vile the point at which this story, the story of modern politics, starts to go wrong. Rousseau, who comes just before that, offers a version of democracy which is much, much purer. And Rousseau, like Vile, was completely against political parties. He thought that the state, the body politic, had to exclude them if it was to function. Rousseau's version of democracy for Vile is the pursuit of universal truths. It is that version of democracy where people come together and they find the things on which ultimately they can all agree. It's an incredibly demanding, austere version of democracy. But Vile thought it's not impossible. We just haven't tried it. And yet, in another essay that she wrote, towards the end of her life, in the winter of 1942-1943, the one I want to talk about now, one of the most extraordinary essays I've ever read, called Human Personality. You get the strong feeling she doesn't even really believe that. In Human Personality, there is no attempt 
to defend an idea of democracy. All forms of democracy are treated as though ultimately they are corrupted and corruptible. In fact, in human personality, Vile makes the case that any collective pursuit of the truth, any attempt to collectivize, and she is a socialist saying this, any attempt to collectivize the truth, to build the truth up out of an accumulation of human experience or human knowledge is to give it an institutional form that will destroy it. There is no truth when it is collective. And that pretty much does rule out democracy. She doesn't just apply the argument to the church. She doesn't just apply the argument to political parties and democratic institutions. She applies the same argument to what is perhaps, for some people, the one institution of modern life that should be immune from it. She thinks this also means that science is impossible. Modern science can't be done in the way that it professes to do it. That is to pursue the truth collectively through the endeavours of scientists and researchers and experimenters to come up with something that is genuinely impersonal because what people are looking for is evidence that can hold whoever you are and wherever you study it from, that strip away people's prejudices, all of the ideals of scientific endeavour and the scientific enterprise, that it will arrive at something that holds regardless of the people who come up with the truths that are to be held. Weil thinks that that's all nonsense, that science is nothing like that, that science is a typical modern institution. In other words, it's a kind of personality cult. All of these institutions, in the end, are reducible to the cult of personality, that scientists aren't disinterested pursuers of the truth, that any scientist you might meet is, like all modern human beings, interested in his or her own truth and the status that that gives them. They want to be the discoverers of the truth. And in discovering the truth, they want to be the ones who stand out. They want to take the story forward in their own way and bring other people with them. And the supposed impartiality of science is just a cover for its extraordinarily cultish qualities. In Human Personality, Weil says of modern science that it is as enslaved by fashion as anything, including, I quote, the shape of Parisian hats, that scientists will pursue the latest fashion just as avidly as a clothes designer will pursue the latest fashion. They just want to know what's the next thing. And then they either want to join in or they want to reject it. So in science, what people do is they take sides. It is no different from democratic politics. You belong to this group or to that group. You are a member of this cult or of that cult. And once you've signed up to your group, you will reject the ideas of the other groups as avidly as any political figure will. Science, she says, is a form of dictatorship. Again, I quote, the collective opinion of specialists is practically a dictatorship, she says. You read this and you suspect, who knows, you suspect that a 21st century Simone Weil would be an anti-vaxxer. She has had enough of experts.
It's more than that, though. This argument is not just an argument about the institutions of modern life and the way in which they corrupt the truth. It's about personality and the cult of personality. And it is a rejection of all the ways in which vile thinks modern life is organised as a cult of personality. And by that, she means two things. One, more familiar, in a way more accessible. The other, much, much more far-reaching and harder to grasp. The familiar notion of a cult of personality is that someone, some person somewhere, is celebrated way beyond their qualities or their value or their worth. That We end up enslaving ourselves to certain people because of their celebrity or their status. Their name becomes for us a kind of touchstone for the truth. And Vile says, and who's going to disagree with her, that if you think someone's name is a touchstone for the truth, you don't know what the truth is anymore. And that name could be Einstein or it could be Stalin. Doesn't matter. Celebrity worship is not a path to the truth. But the other thing she means, the more far-reaching thing she means in attacking the idea of personality, is that the very idea of human beings as persons is a mistake. To think of any of us as having our humanity captured in our personalities, the thing that makes us different from each other, is a mistake, a fatal and fateful mistake that we almost all make in the modern world because the modern world is a cult of the person. And by the person, what she means here is thinking that we are made up of the things that make us different, that we are all a different combination of qualities and ideas that are distinctive to us. Who am I as a person? I am the things that I believe in, the experiences that I've had, the physical qualities that I possess. To be a person for vile is to have a range of different qualities that make you who you are, that are potentially unique to you, and are a kind of amalgamation of different things. Physical qualities, the things that make your body different, tall, short, blonde, dark. Emotional qualities, hot-headed, cool, passionate, sceptical of experiences, of beliefs, of indoctrination in particular faith, of rejection of particular faith. That's what makes you a person. A combination of things that together build you up. And Vile says the fatal mistake of thinking that that is the essence of our humanity, that to be a person is to be you, is that anything that can be assembled in that way can also be disassembled. If we are made up of the sum of lots and lots of different qualities, those qualities can be changed, they can be taken away from us, they can be reordered by other people, and we are still persons. We are just another combination of qualities. We lose control of who we are by thinking that we are uniquely who we are. It's a hard idea to wrap your head around because it is so pervasive, the idea that to be a person is to be human and to be human is to be a person. But Vile's point, which is not hard to wrap your head around, is that to be a person creates the possibility of becoming a non-person. If these qualities go together to make up a person and we can disaggregate those qualities, we can take away the things that make people a person and we can make those people nothing. And we can also take away from a person things that might be essential to their personality, but we've decided are superfluous. 
And Vial, always going for the, the fullest version of her argument, says a person is this hair, those feet, those arms, those eyes, those brown eyes are part of your personality. And if your eyes are part of your personality, then you can have your eyes put out. Maybe the eyes are the dispensable part. Maybe in order to be a person, someone else will decide you need to have blue eyes. And in that case, your eyes are not safe. Nothing is safe in the world of persons because nothing is sacrosanct. Everything is part of the assemblage. And in the extension of that argument, she attacks one of the sacred features of modern life, which is the idea that the thing that persons have one of the things that makes them persons, is they have rights. Rights is part of the assemblage. You can have more rights or fewer rights. You can have these rights, but not those rights. As a person, you can demand more rights. You can negotiate for your rights. You can insist on your rights. You can say, I am not a person unless you give me these rights. And to have rights is to be a person, but to have rights is also to have the possibility of having them taken away. And there is nothing sacred about rights because, as Weil says, rights are just part of a package that can be assembled and disassembled at whim by the people with the power. In a world of persons, that will be the people who head the personality cults. She blames the Romans for this. So in the contest between ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which one is better? Simone Weil is 100% team Greece. She's team Athens. She thinks the Romans were awful. And she compares them to the Nazis. The Romans were kind of ancient Nazis, or rather the Nazis are modern Romans. And what she means by that is that the Romans were a brutal, oppressive, cruel people, and their politics was brutal and oppressive and cruel. But they dressed it up as justice, and they dressed it up in part in the language of rights, just as the Nazis did. The Nazis talked about rights too. The Nazis weren't people who said there are no such things as rights. They just said rights only belong to certain persons, and non-persons don't have rights. You can do anything to them. The Romans likewise. And Val says the point about rights is that you attach them to persons, but it also means that persons can be owned by people who have rights over them. So rights don't just attach to you, they attach to other people, and that gives them rights over you, including ultimately property rights, including the right to own another person. And in the Roman world, rights also justified slavery. Slave owners had rights over their slaves. Their slaves had no rights. Now you might say, well, that's not that different from ancient Greece. It's not like the Romans had slaves, the Nazis have slaves, but the ancient Greeks didn't have slaves. They had slaves too. Slavery was a ubiquitous feature of the ancient world. But Vile thinks the difference between the Romans and the Greeks is that the Romans tried to rationalise the institution of slavery, and the way in which they did that was through the language of rights. They tried to justify it. Both the Romans and the Nazis, Val says, were monsters, are monsters, but they were what she calls monsters with ideas, ideas to clothe their monstrousness. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Greeks, she thinks, didn't play that game. They didn't try and rationalize slavery. With one or two exceptions, so she doesn't have much time for Aristotle. She is 100% team Plato, not team Aristotle. Aristotle, for Vile, has many things to be said against him, one of which was that he was a kind of scientist, therefore at the beginning of the cult of science, another of which is that he tried to justify slavery. Plato always had his mind on higher things. Plato was about the capital T truth and capital J justice, which meant not thinking about slavery at all always thinking about higher things, being emancipated from the need to justify the impossible institution. Now, you might say, well, that's not much consolation if you're a slave. If you're a slave, does it make any difference whether you're living in a world where your owners try to justify slavery or they don't even think about it? Your situation is going to be the same. But in a way, that's Vile's point. It doesn't make a difference. If you're a slave, it doesn't make a difference if you're living in a world of rights or a world that doesn't even talk about rights, that only talks about justice, a form of justice that you can't even be involved in because in those terms, you don't exist. If you're a slave, you're a slave. But to live in a world of rights is to be dragged down to the level of trying to justify slavery. To live in a world of capital J justice is at least to have the possibility of being emancipated from that. Not the slaves, but the rest. It's not much of a choice, but Vile's point is that it's a false choice if we think slavery plus rights is better than slavery without rights. And in Human Personality, she says other choices that look like the all-important choices are also false, that not much hangs on them, and perhaps most shockingly of all, she says that applies to the, the choices of the 1940s. This is 1942-43. And she says in the great contest, the contest that really matters for her, which is France versus Nazi Germany, what had been democratic France versus the fascist state of Germany. You might think you need to be 100% team France if you're Simone Weil notwithstanding all her misgivings about democracy. But in this essay, she says, democratic France and fascist Germany are basically just two versions of the same error. The fascist version is the stronger version of the error. It is, in a way, the more extreme version of the error, but it's still the same error. And the error is the idea that if you collectivize human personality, if you amalgamate it in some way, 
you make it stronger, you make it more powerful, you give people more protection. The fascist state offers people protection in the idea of the folk, of the people, and then excludes everyone who doesn't belong. And as Val says, that is deeply appealing to all those modern citizens who are lost in a world of rights. We will make your rights real and to hell with the rest. The French democratic version is more, we will treat you all as individual persons and we will give you all a place in this democratic regime. We will bring you all together, amalgamate you into something that we will call France. And France will be made up of all of you and all of you are made up of all of your personal traits. The word person originates with the idea of the persona or the mask and for vile, that's what a person is. A person is a kind of outward shell. A person is just what's on the outside. All of the things that are on the outside, from skin to hair, to the words that come out of your mouth, to the ideas that you espouse. And a democratic, collective person is just a giant mask made up of many, many masks. And though it is a lesser error than the error of fascism, which Weil understands is completely grotesque, it's also weaker as a lesser error, it's also the weaker form of politics. And the evidence for that is that democratic France collapsed in the face of fascism. It couldn't withstand it. And it couldn't withstand it because it was just a weaker version of the same error. All attempts to collectivise human personality, Vile thinks, will fail. And that means workers' collectives too. So not just fascist collectivization, but workers' collectivization. So another set of institutions that she rejects, and she does end up rejecting all of them, are trade unions. She worked in a factory, she worked in a Renault factory, and she saw the horror of it. The phrase that she uses in Human Personality to describe her first-hand experience of the life of a factory worker in 1930s France is, I quote, icy pandemonium. It's horror. She thinks it's a horror show the cruelty, the indifference, this vast collectivised person, which is Renault. Corporations are collective persons too. States are collective persons. All of these great amalgamations of the amalgamation, which is human personality, which are even more remote and even more removed from true core human experience. These vast collective machines are completely indifferent to human fate. And so the fate of the workers who live inside them it's a horror show. It's a horror film. What to do? The question when you read Vile is always at the back of your mind, okay, but what's anyone meant to do about this horror show? And she says, you can't get out of it by bargaining for your rights. Rights are the horror show. Rights are not the way out. Her analogy is that for a worker under those abject conditions to bargain for his or her rights is like a human being demanding a higher price with the devil for selling his or her soul. When the devil comes for your soul, you don't think, if only I could get a little bit more for my soul, it would be all right. In the same way, under modern labour conditions, to think that there's a bargain to be struck around the framework of rights, which will allow you to escape from the horror, is to forget that there is no escape from the horror, unless you repudiate the entire intellectual structure on which it is built, a structure of ownership, of slavery, 
and of rights. And so at this point, it does start to feel that this essay, which is bracing, shocking, completely compellingly written, and it has a kind of mystical streak running through it. So you feel like you're reading the words of someone who's maybe seen things that ordinary human beings haven't seen. All of those qualities are there in this essay. And yet, as you read it, you find yourself wanting to scream at her. So what else is there? I mean, this is the modern world. This is how we live. This is who we are. How are we to get out of it? How are we to escape? And she does have an answer. It is an incredibly demanding, impossibly austere answer. But her answer is for the workers in the factory living in intolerable conditions, that rather than bargaining for their rights, they need to pursue what she calls the sacred. They need to find somewhere in the human experience the thing that is true for all human beings. And as she says at the beginning of the essay, at the middle of the essay, and at the end of the essay, the one thing that is true for all human beings that transcends human personality and human difference is that we all suffer. We are all of us capable of suffering. And at some level, we all experience suffering the same way. That is, we know that the good is having our suffering heard. That's what goodness means. It means that our suffering is not ignored. And evil, the opposite of good, is ignoring suffering, indifference to suffering. But you don't suffer because of the person that you are. It's not your personality that makes you capable of suffering. It's your humanity. It's what it means to be human, is to suffer. So the sacred in this context is an understanding that the worst thing that can happen in the world is for suffering to go unheard. If you work in that factory and you are suffering, you do not get your suffering heard by pleading for or bargaining for your rights. You have to hope that somewhere in there, someone or something recognises human goodness which is just to hear that you are suffering. It is a religious vision, but it's also a political vision. There is a political idea behind this too, though it comes close to being almost an absurd inversion of the thing that Vile is railing against. Who are the people who can hear suffering in that way? Who are the ones who, who understand what it is to suffer, apart perhaps from Christ himself. It's Plato, it's one or two philosophers, it's one or two artists, it's, she says, the Shakespeare who wrote King Lear. It's a tiny number of works of art, pieces of writing, around which what she wants is not commentary and criticism and intellectual life and debate. The thing that she hankers for around the truth is silence, capital S, silence. And this is not mindfulness silence. This is not trying to find a bit of peace in a crazy and cluttered modern world. This is the silence of finding a way out of the shrieking in the icy pandemonium of modern life. It's a, it's a pure silence. It's a transcendent silence. So what is the political vision then? Who are we meant to be ruled by? Can't be political parties can't be trade unions, can't be a cult of personality. You can't be ruled by Plato and Shakespeare's King Lear. She says, 
Our salvation lies in our ability to identify those human beings who have reached the level of the impersonal, who are not trapped by their desire to be something different, not trapped by their desire for status or privilege or talent or to be intelligent. She is contemptuous of people who think that the way out of this is intelligence. And part of what makes this essay so compelling is no one's ever put this argument better. It is expressed in a way that is unforgettable. Some of the lines in this essay will always stay with you. Certainly, they stay with me. I'll just give you my favourite. This line, once read, is never forgotten. Vile says, The intelligent man who is proud of his intelligence is like a condemned man who is proud of his large cell. There's no coming back from that. So intelligence is out, talent is out, privilege is out, science is out. She thinks we're living in an absurd world where we think we can equalise privilege. It's her equivalent of we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. You can't equalise privilege. Either it's privilege or it's equal. And yet somehow we can believe we can have both. You either have to listen to the very few philosophers, artists, maybe religious figures, who have come close to the truth. Or she says, you're better off listening to, and this is her language, the village idiots. In a world where we need silence around the pandemonium, better to listen to the people who are of necessity silent, the inarticulate, the mute, the people who can't express themselves, who can only silently suffer. Better to try and hear them than to listen to the chattering of the intellectuals. And there is that drumbeat in the background of this, even as I use that phrase, the chattering of the intellectuals. There is a streak of anti-Semitism in this. She wants us to hear the village idiots. And the village idiots have got nothing to say. So if only we would listen, we would find a kind of silence. I don't even know what that means. And if you think of the other group, the seekers after truth, how could you listen to them without, in the end, recreating a cult of personality? Who are these people that we decide, this religious figure, that political martyr, this near saint, is the one that we should follow? It sounds not less, but more cultish, not less, but more cultish than Catholicism or Stalinism or liberalism or simple faith in science. So having said all of that, what then is there to be said in favour of this essay, apart from the fact that I think everyone should read it, because it is completely unforgettable, and because it is incredibly bracing to have someone dismantle rights. I would say two or three things, not in defence of vile, because I don't think I can do that, but beyond what I've just said. The first is to try and frame this in the language that I used in talking about Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf, like many of the greatest modern writers of the greatest modernists, and Simone Weil is many things, but she sure as hell isn't a modernist, is grappling with how to live with the paradoxes of modernity. How can we live with the fact that we are required all the time to be two incompatible things at once, to be individuals, to be personalities, to be persons with rights, and also to be subsumed to the collective, to belong to groups, to be shaped by our social conditioning? How can we be both individuals with consciences and simply the products of our time? And the challenge of modernity is 
to live with that, to find a way under those conditions nonetheless, to seek after the truth, to be individuals, to try and achieve some form of progress, to ameliorate human suffering, all of the things that might seem worthwhile, to do it under those conditions. That is to recognise it will, by definition, be a paradoxical endeavour. Simone Weil is not trying to live with the paradoxes of modernity. She is trying to reject them or to escape them, to get outside of them, because she thinks ultimately they are unlivable with. It is intolerable to have to construct a human life on the basis that the thing that makes us different is also the thing that makes us the same as everyone else. That our unique assemblage that makes us the persons that we are is also something that can simply be taken apart by science or corporate power or political force. It's unbearable, and so we shouldn't try and bear it. Modern life is trying to bear it, and she says we should stop. And part of the reason she says we should stop is that trying to live with those paradoxes means that we are deaf to human suffering, that in the end, there is too much unheard suffering in the world, too much mute suffering. The intellectuals with their paradoxes will hear certain kinds of distress, but most of human distress is inarticulate. And to be good in those conditions is to shut up so that you can hear it and the intellectuals just won't stop talking. They just won't shut up. And in 1942, 1943, she was right. I mean, there was an unbelievable amount of unheard human suffering in the world. Her people, the people she wished she wasn't a part of, the Jews, were being exterminated, unheard, often unseen. Whole communities were being wiped out in the bloodlands of Central and Eastern Europe. Human life was effectively being extinguished under conditions of unimaginable suffering without anyone hearing it, without anyone recognising that most of the worst things that were happening in the world were not even being noticed. And until we stop with all the chat, we won't notice, she thought. Well, after the war, when it was over, the suffering was heard. It was too late, but it was recognised and a lot of it was heard. A lot of the suffering that she's talking about, a lot of the suffering that she personally experienced, including as a miserable Renault factory worker, was increasingly heard and recognised. It wasn't mute. It was articulated. A lot of it was articulated in the language of rights, of human rights, but also of workers' rights, of labour rights, of women's rights. And I think you would have to be mad to believe that suffering wasn't lessened because of that, that the hearing of that suffering, even if it was in the language of rights, allowed something to be done about it. So it doesn't make sense to say, therefore, after the war, we were on a path to there being less suffering in the world. But we were at least on a path through the language of democracy and liberal freedoms and certain liberal ideals to hear people who hadn't been heard before, to recognise that their suffering was not a matter of indifference to us, that they were not slaves, that indeed slavery should be abolished wherever possible, and that the people who were most vulnerable, including what Vile would call the village idiots, had to be heard. So you can't follow Vile down a path that says there is all of this mute suffering in the world and therefore what is incumbent on us is to shut up, to stop talking about rights or freedom and just to hear it. It's like saying there is all this starvation in the world 
and there was a lot of starvation in the world. And therefore, what we should do is starve ourselves. One of the stories that attaches to Simone Weil, one of the ways in which her death was nothing like George Orwell's death or Thoreau's death, was that it is said that she starved herself to death. In the summer of 1943, she was living in England. She had come back to England from America, where she'd gone with her parents, not to escape the war, but to get them out of the war. Then she wanted to come back to join the free French forces. She wanted to be a soldier again. She wanted to fight. She hoped that she would be parachuted behind enemy lines and could work as a nurse. What she really hoped was that she could become a martyr. She wasn't. What she ended up was a sick person in a hospital in Kent. And while there, it is said, she refused to eat any more than the rations that were available to French prisoners living under the Nazis, who were themselves effectively being starved to death. Why should she, in England, have more to eat than someone living in France under Nazi rule? So she would ration herself. This is disputed. At least one of her doctors said the reason she couldn't eat was that she had tuberculosis, not because she chose to starve herself to death. But the story surrounding her death is that she rationed herself in a world where people were being rationed at starvation level. She wouldn't allow herself not to suffer in the way that they suffered. And so the story goes, she died, age 34. It's as though she was saying it is better to starve yourself to death in a world of starving people than to try and end starvation by talking the language of rights. And that has to be wrong. Maybe there is some version of Christian faith in which that makes sense. I have to say, if there is, I don't understand it. And if Weil's argument depends on sharing her Christian faith, it's inaccessible to people like me. But still, I think there are a couple more things to say. One of which is, within the human condition, it is always possible to be back in 1942, 1943. It's not as though in our world of rights and science and medical advance and the amelioration of human suffering that we don't also have within it the capacity to go back to a world of vast, unheard oceans, abysses of human suffering. Given all the things that might happen as the collective persons of the modern world, the states and corporations, chew through the planet, destroy the environment, hoard their nuclear weapons, develop their new scientific technologies and toys, build their robots in that world, which is still our world. The possibility of great waves of unheard human suffering are still real. And I understand vile saying, we might not hear it. We not, might not hear it through or behind all of the democracy and science and rights talk. We might be building the machines which are the cruelest machines of all. We may have already built them. After all, we have built nuclear weapons. But we won't hear the suffering that they cause, because it will be drowned out by the noise of the machinery. That must still be true. And the other thing that I think is probably true is that to say of Simone Weil that she didn't have an answer to what came next, that she didn't explain how you get from the world of suffering that she saw to something that recognised and heard human vulnerability. She didn't have a political answer beyond her weird 
inverted cult of personality, her cult of the village idiot. She didn't really have a religious answer. She certainly didn't have a scientific answer. She didn't have any answer to the question of what came next. But she wasn't interested in what came next. And the other criticism that's made of her is that she was too preoccupied with what came before, what was before the French Revolution, what was before the modern age of science, before King Lear, before Shakespeare, all the way back to Plato, that she was nostalgic for a, a version of the human experience that was long gone. I don't think that's true either. I don't think you can read an essay like Human Personality and think that Simone Weil was nostalgic for anything. There is not a hint of nostalgia in it. It is an icy cold piece of writing by someone who had experienced icy pandemonium. Simone Weil was not interested in what comes after the paradoxes of modernity, and she was not interested in what comes before the paradoxes of modernity. Simone Weil was interested in what lies outside the paradoxes of modernity. She wanted to know what's out there, what's separate. She wanted to ask the question, how do we stand outside this thing? And it must be true that there should always be someone asking that question. We are now halfway through this short summer season of 20th century essays and 20th century essayists. Next week, it's James Baldwin. After that, Susan Sontag. And then Joan Didion. But we also want to do an episode in which I try and respond to some of your questions. There have been some great questions on Twitter about the essays I've talked about so far. And we would love to have some more. You can contact us on Twitter by following us at PPF Ideas. Or if you have questions that you would like to email direct, our email address is ppfideas, all one word, at gmail.com. ppfideas at gmail.com. We will gather those questions together. I will do my best, if not to answer them, at least to address them. The engagement with this series has been fantastic. I hugely appreciate it. And we would love to have some more. Next week, I'll be talking about James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son. Please join me for that. My name's David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.